You are listening to the Maastricht Diplomat. Welcome back to the third and final episode in our series Abducted Art and Cultural Theft. In this series, we discuss the debate over the repatriation of cultural artifacts held by former colonial powers and the modern fight against the illicit trafficking of looted objects. We conducted interviews with experts to discuss their approach to fighting for the restitution of cultural property. My name is Rue and I'm a third year arts and culture student and the current co-head of the Maastricht Diplomat audiovisual team. I am joined today by my wonderful co-host Simon, who is a third year student of European studies and a journalist interested in culture and heritage. Over the past couple of years, the demands for the repatriation of looted colonial artefacts in Western museums by European colonialists during the 19th century has been at the forefront of societal debate. In 1897, a brutal and bloody British military occupation of the Benin city saw the destruction, plunder and looting of more than 3,000 Benin bronzes and ivory artworks of ceremonial significance. These artefacts were later sold to museums and private collectors across Europe and America. Although these institutions and private collectors were merely sold or loaned the Benin bronzes, the context in which these artefacts were extracted is defined by British colonialism and rests at the moral heart of the Benin art controversy. Today, its legacy remains and its injustice is highlighted by Britain's failure to return the looted artefacts to the Benin Kingdom located in present-day Nigeria. Several hundred pieces of these looted Benin bronzes have ended up in museums and institutions across the United Kingdom, one of them being at the University of Aberdeen. In today's episode, we'll be joined by Neil Curtis, the Head of Museums and Special Collections at the University of Aberdeen, to discuss his research on the social and cultural roles of museums today. Originally from Glasgow, Neil came to Aberdeen in 1988, where he focused his research on a critical study of museums and archaeology. We are honoured to have Neil here today to share with us his expertise on the efforts to repatriate the Benin bronzes, the treatment of human remains in museums, the educational role of museums, and the argument for museums to emphasise the Enlightenment project of encyclopedias of the world. So thank you for joining us today, Neil. It's an honour to have you. Thank you very much. Let's start right off with the first question. We are just wondering when and how did your interest in art begin? My parents met on an archaeology evening class. So I think it was predetermined. It's always been around me. I mean, I think particularly growing up in Glasgow, where there's a really strong museum culture, the as we called it, the art galleries was, you know, just you know, 20 minutes walk away from the house. And, you know, I've always had that interest. What are your tasks at the University of Aberdeen Museum and Special Collections? And what in particular do you like so much about, about it? Considering you spent your entire working life <laughs> so far, as I read, uh, in Aberdeen's yes. museums. <laughs> Basically, near enough. When I came, I came as a museum assistant. So I've really done almost all the possible jobs. I've dabbled in bits and pieces. And I think that is actually what I find most exciting is that, you know, it's always new things. There's always, you know, and the collection itself is such a complex collection. While I started thinking particularly about the you know, the Scottish history and archaeology, which is where my, you know, my background was, I've gradually become responsible for what we call world cultures, biological science collections, the geology, scientific instruments. I've gradually, you know, come into my responsibility. And then most recently, our university archives and rare books collections. So there's always new things. And I, I sort of 
light on a different thing and find that's really fascinating. How is that changing my my view of everything else? And it just keeps going. You know, I'm now responsible primarily for managing a team of about 20 people who are doing all these different things, but I still manage to keep doing some myself. And I think I am the tallest member of staff. So I still have to take, you know, I'm the one who's called in to lift the heavy things from the top shelf. Um, <laughs> but I think something really important working in a university museum is that we try to engage with the university, that it's something special about being, being a university museum. So I'm involved in teaching on the museum studies programme. I coordinate some courses there, including curating an exhibition where the students curate an exhibition using the university collections. That's tremendous. That, you know, if I'm going to be teaching, I've got to be understanding what I'm doing. And I've also got to be understanding what other places are doing. So it's not just, you know, Aberdeen alone and there's something else out there. Is really trying to understand, you know, changes in the sector more broadly. So it is that mass of different things going on, of incredibly varied collections, and all the connections, therefore, with people both within the university and internationally who engage with us. There's constantly new things to learn. Yes. Oh yes. Amazing part of your job. It's definitely never boring, and I've and I have found. I mean, I never intended to stay in Aberdeen this long, but it's just kept me going. Today, especially, wanted to talk about a case which was quite big in the media in the last few years. We're talking about the famous Benin bronzes. There were also part of the Benin bronzes in the Aberdeen collections. And there were all these calls for repatriation and that many comments in the media and articles. And we are just wondering, how did the people at the museum, yourself and also your colleagues, react to this? I actually think one of the striking things for us is that we didn't that a lot of the media coverage has actually come sometimes as a result of, but certainly, you know, the big international excitement in the media has really come after we had gone through our own process and made our own decision. But that's definitely not claim that we were, you know, this idea of being first and want to set that aside. I've been aware of the university collection, including a Ben in bronze. I wouldn't say from 1988, but it sort of, you know, gradually crept into the consciousness that there was this one sitting there. And the first case, first repatriation case I was involved in was 2003 to the Kainai First Nation in, in Canada. And following that, I put on a wee exhibition about museums and repatriation. And I included the Benny and Bronze in that as saying, you know, here is an item that there is discussion around where it should be. There was a campaign in the 1990s led by Bernie Grant, who was a, 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 an MP, a British MP, and he did get in touch with, with the university, but it didn't get any further than him just checking what were there any Benny and Bronzes. And there was no, that then faded away, sadly he died. But it just increasingly I, I was feeling, hang on, this is almost a, you know, a raw sore that we've, we know we've got this. Yeah. We know that it was looted. So what are we going to do about it? We didn't have students campaigning for its return because it wasn't an, on show. They weren't aware it, it existed. There wasn't that international focus because this was a collection that only had the one. So we didn't have external pressure on us it was more just following the logic through if we're going to be involved in repatriations in other cases what are we doing with this the difficulty I had was who do you talk to what's the procedure because other repatriation cases I've been involved in people came saying you know you have something you have our ancestors we want them back so you knew who you were talking to whereas with this we didn't so the real challenge was making that connection and making sure that we weren't 
getting it wrong. I think there's a real danger that in a sense of cleansing our own consciences, we can dump problems on other people. So I wanted to be sure that the Nigerian federal government, the state government, the National Museums and the Court of the Oba, I didn't know which of them were the ones to contact. We were able, actually through Jos van Burden and his Repatriation Matters group, he put us in touch with Professor Bankele Sadipo in Nigeria, who then was able to be in touch with those different parties, eventually pull together a proposal that came from the federal government with the support of the Royal Court, of the National Museums, uh, and so on. So that was what we were doing, and it was quite quietly, without any media, it, it was really in many ways, a very, very straightforward thing. After we made the decision and the announcement that then the the media became interested, then there's this, oh, we were the first, all that sort of stuff. But you think if you're running a race and you come in 125 years late, I don't (laughs) think you can claim you're winning. In my mind, I've got two bits of thinking. One is around the procedures we have, the discussions we had, those processes, that on the one hand, and then a media story on the other. And they're, you know, they connect, but they're very different stories. Maybe we can talk a bit more about the repatriation and how it went along. You said already it was actually very difficult to find who you could contact in the end and how were you maybe personally also involved the procedure was devised for us reacting to a proposal which is the word i think i prefer just now it technically talks about claim but i actually don't like the word claim it's rather oppositional it's you know you're claiming begging there's a power relationship implicit in in the word claim it is still is reactive because we're saying somebody has to come to us whereas in this case we were the ones making the claim which just was a bit weird so that's why I think proposal is better I think the biggest shift is we've now got to rework our procedure to start using the word proposal and to make it that we can more proactively ourselves be the ones that make the proposal there are two aspects of the proposal I, I, I like to highlight one is that we have criteria that are so-called educational so they don't set threshold so you don't need to prove that it has been illegally acquired or prove that you are the lineal descendant of the person from whom something was taken instead the the criteria set the structure of a discussion so let's discuss what is the item we're talking about are we all agreed we're talking about the same thing when i say that this is the only one there is another bronze Benin head in the collection but it clearly was a sort of 1950s casting that had been bought by somebody so that was of a different order and so that wasn't part of the proposal we did discuss it it's actually in dreadful condition I don't know that I'd wish it on anybody that first discussion around what is it we're talking about then a discussion around what is its history which in this case was actually not the history of this item as much as the whole history of the looting so there was a bit about we managed did get provenance information sorted so that we could track this particular item back to that group that had been looted. Then we look at the relationship between 
the people making the claim and the item and it we're not presupposing any particular form of relationship and i'm i'm wary of using western concepts like lineal descent that is one form of relationship there's so many i mean we know in anthropology i mean kinship and relationship is such a rich area so i wouldn't want to suppose one version then the final two criteria focus on the significance of it to the people making the proposal and to the university so that we there isn't a, a sort of default setting that it stays with the university unless proven otherwise once you go into that discussion the university if it wanted to retain it would have to make a case yeah. why it was so significant to the university that it would matter finally we look at the implications of return or not returning on both the university and people would be returned to so it's a way of structuring a conversation rather than it being a measure the other thing we we have is the decision is made by the university court which is the governing body of the university and that's just a matter of scots law that an item is the property of the university then the university can keep it or give it away if it didn't have legal title then it couldn't give it away so there's a wee bit of a a logical knot in that that if you yeah. dispute that the university owns something you've still got to engage the university on its terms as the owner which yeah. i get the problem but the only alternative there is really going to the legal courts to say the university isn't the rightful owner so it's yeah it's a necessity of western law that that's how it, how it works rather than having the university court which is the body that runs the university we set up an expert panel that considers the proposal so it's able to have its full attention on it and you know go into all the details and that panel is made up of people within the university representing the university court people responsible for looking after the collections academic staff with relevant expertise in this case we appointed um, somebody who's a lecturer in history with expertise in West Africa and somebody who is himself a Nigerian working in the economics department so understanding that local context we also appoint a representative from another museum in Scotland so we're not doing it in isolation in this case it was Steph Scalton who's director of the Ontarian and who has a wider interest in museum ethics and repatriation so he brought extra stuff to it really importantly we have a you know a member of the you know representative of those making the claim to use that term and in this case it was Bankley Sadipo who was a member of the panel so not speaking to the panel but part of the panel that panel then came to a completely consensual agreement on what should be done that was then passed on to the university senior management team and then passed on to the university court and all the way through that there was complete consensus within the university which i think is really striking we read that in 2021 you gave back the last of the benin bronzes how did the whole thing pick up with the students and how did they react also so we didn't have you know compared with jesus college in cambridge who we worked quite closely with that was initiated by students protesting yeah We didn't have that. Students weren't aware of what we were doing until it was done. (laughs) Um, Which is a question, there's a question mark over that. Should we be engaging more with the students in the university? And particularly in this case with Nigerian students, we've got an awful lot more work to do. It's not just a matter of international prestige gained from returning an item. Two days before the return ceremony, I was able to take it along to one of the classes that I was actually teaching on that course and we you know I was able to show it in the class and then really got 
the international moment that there was around that. And, you know, they, like me, had this privilege of being, you know, up close and personal with it. And that was, that was really exciting, you know, for all of us. That's really amazing. And it's really nice to hear that the university are very cooperative and in agreement in how and why you want to repatriate artifacts like the Benin bronzes because it's definitely not the same (laughs) everywhere as you said like there have been student protests that we're aware of in Cambridge and here in the Netherlands but I think it's really interesting to know of a university that like you said it is a question mark but it is a difference to what we know we know it comes from the students. My caution around student protest I mean this is where it's you know, it's really sad when things come to protest. Sometimes it's necessary. But as I you know, said earlier, I'm really interested in people's motivations. For example, you can get the white saviour coming in on this, the, you know, and it is near enough a neo-colonial attitude that says, you know, our ancestors thought it was right to take this from you. We now think we're right and we're going to give it back to you and think, right, hang on. Yeah. Do people want it back? And there are, you know, there are various examples around the world. I'm thinking particularly North America, where the whole repatriation thinking has been so rich working with indigenous people. And sometimes the impact of essentially colonialism on them over many, many years has meant that they're not actually in a position to want to take their ancestors back yeah. just now. It may be in the future. But just now, it's not quite the right time. They want to do it properly. Likewise, you know, sacred items. Who are the right people to take something that's sacred that are traditional practices? Who's best to judge that? Yeah. And that can cause real problems. And so it's very easy for us here to think we know what's best for the world. I mean, we have, you know, centuries of thinking we know what's best for the world. And to continue that and instead it really has to be so much more about listening it is about a shared history and i think the that first repatriation case that once that item is a sacred bundle that we saw as a headdress and when that was returned the person who became the keeper of it contacted me after it was returned to order up a kilt jacket so that he could wear that when he was dancing it because he thought that the the time that that bundle had spent in Aberdeen was part of its life and not something to deny and forget they made those decisions that's what we were responding to it wasn't a case where we particularly talked about it being stolen or looted or anything like that that wasn't the issue the issue was much more around significance to us it was a headdress from the American plane whereas to them it was a gift of the creator as a sacred item and so it was setting aside those two significances we thought well really you know who should have this so not setting up these everything should be returned no, it's, it's, we should be listening, we should be engaging. There are these connections between us. I mean, that was a connection that had been a rather unequal connection in the 1920s in Canada. And I think it became a more equal one that now means that when we do get in touch with each other, which isn't a necessary follow-up to return, we've got a better basis for working together. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really important thing that mm-hmm. you said. It, yeah. it, it's not about, you know, giving it back in as saying let's forget that you know why it came and everything's now put right and therefore we walk away it's I think it's really nice that it it is about that conversation again you know as soon as I say something I immediately caveat it we've got to be careful that we don't expect a relationship to develop yeah 
that sometimes, you know, the aim is to get an ancestor back, to get a sacred item back, to get a cultural item back. And that's the purpose. That's the end of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a risk that museums are now starting thinking, oh, we want to build these international relationships. And you think, but that again is us forcing something. We always tend to have a memorandum of understanding signed with the people we're turning to. We always made sure that that happens after the transfer has happened. So it's not a condition of transfer. I read there's in... Nigeria, they want to make a museum with the Benin bronzes in, and they've got into contact with the British Museum, but I, I'm mm. aware that they don't want to repatriate it, but they're willing to loan the Benin bronzes to that museum, which in some ways, again, is forcing some type of... It's interesting that that discussion with the, you know, the Benin Dialogue Group was established mm-hmm. a few years ago with that idea of loans from some of the big European collections like that, the British Museum. We didn't get involved with that. I mean, for a start, we were not one of the big collections, so we weren't part of it. But I didn't get in touch with them as the way that's why I say we, we established a separate yeah. route, because the logic we were following was this was, you know, not going to be the university's property. So yeah. getting into discussions about loans. If we'd been talking about loans at all, it would have been the other way around. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, that was that was completely different. I knew that was existing and I know that was helping build relationships as people in Nigeria discussed how they would work with the Benin Dialogue Group, what museum they developed, who would be the partners. That sort of discussion, I think, was very helpful because they were already talking. And I think the big aim is about the return of those large collections, not picking off the the odd one from the north of Scotland. But it all starts somewhere, I guess. (laughs) As I say, that difficulty was finding who to talk to because there wasn't a pathway set. And I think if if there's anything that we can claim credit for it was maybe being a wee bit of a catalyst that as a result of going through that and I think that is one of the reasons why our Nigerian partners chose to work with Aberdeen because there was only the one bronze I mean it's not a large collection it's just a single item so it established the pathway and made sure that everybody was aligned in Nigeria that they had agreed what relationships were I think previously discussions had been rather abstract whereas being faced with a bronze example then you actually knew what the outcome would be if you agree it comes back if you can't agree well you're going to be stuck in that loop so I think it I think going working through that example was really powerful for all of us involved in sorting it out. Do you believe that western museums or governments have a right to question whether or not colonial looted artwork will be maintained or kept safe in the country that they will be returned to. To be more specific, do you think the British Museum or even the University of Aberdeen have the right to ask the Nigerian authorities or the other people if they are capable of maintaining and securing a Benin bronze, for example? The decision was based on this was looted property although yes legally the university has title therefore is able to return it morally we did not have a right to have that so it was it was in the logic of returning stolen property to its owner you wouldn't if you were returning something to you know like your bike was stolen you wouldn't need to justify to the thief that you were going to look after the bike 
<laughs> so it's that logic there you know we returned it because it was not ours to to have full stop end of story and i was actually struck and i suppose slightly saddened that in the repatriation ceremony we had in aberdeen some of the nigerian people speaking made a point of saying how they would be looking after mm. so that that pressure there is on them is really powerfully there we were not asking for that yeah i don't like the idea that you know in abstract you're not allowed to ask questions mm-hmm. because i think it's good if people do ask questions and talk to each other and have conversations but i think it's irrelevant to the decision making in this case the other thing is that and this is you know i i what i said before i ended with a big big solid full stop nonetheless it's interesting that when people are wanting something returned that is because it really matters it's not an easy thing i mean we there are so many practical difficulties but emotionally to be involved in thinking about really unpleasant bits of your past of wanting to have things back so when people are making those requests this really matters the chances are that they will be wanting to look after. They're not just taking back carelessly. And I think that's not part of the argument, but I think it's part of the understanding. In museums, you expect to find paintings, artifacts, textiles, sculptures. But one thing that doesn't first come to mind is human remains being in universities. How did human remains even end up as part of your collections? And what can they tell us as well about our history and the global world we live in. I think human remains are really tightly bound up with, you know, certainly university museum collections. I've been aware of this, you know, visiting various university museums around Europe. It's so normal. I can say some specific things about Aberdeen and our, you know, particular history that I think is illuminating. While the two colleges that formed the university, both King's College and Marshall College, had museum collections from the the 18th century. It was really the development of sciences in the 19th century that really led to the museum that we've got today, that Mm -hmm. collections being formed for teaching and as the result of research, as well as those that were the curiosities given by members of staff and graduates and so on. So, There was an anatomy collection, a pathology collection, a forensic medicine collection, a surgery collection, you know, alongside the, you know, zoology and botany and geology and so on. In Aberdeen, the professor of anatomy at the beginning of the 20th century, he saw himself as an anthropologist. And this is the way that anthropology developed it was you know to quote the study of mankind and i mean i think it's interesting today we know where anthropology is really interested in embodiment so you know how we bodily experience the world is part of the world and our understanding of it but i think he was particularly interested in um i would say cultural variation around the world he probably saw as racial so alongside a display he created, uh, which was two of the fields of anthropology, what we'd think of as cultural anthropology and archaeology, which he established in 1907. He also established the Anatomy Museum, and that was focusing on the, quote, normal body, is anatomy, and then alongside that, racial variation. And so at the same time as graduates were sending to the university cultural material 
they were also sending human remains for the anatomy museum with the result that we're now responsible for a collection largely of human skulls that was intensely racist that was the whole point of it was to show variation and also a hierarchy with you know white man at the top this is actually one of the discussions where people talk about decolonizing museums i mean museums are so in intensely part of that colonial project that to imagine museums without colonization it really is impossible i'd say most university museums have that same underlying purpose so we're trying to do things differently but we have that history so we have returned to new zealand's maori human remains likewise we're in the process shall we say with australia we also have a very large collection of more local. So from excavations that have happened in Scottish towns over the past 30, 40 years, sometimes when you're building a new shopping centre, it's it's on top of what was a graveyard. And yeah. those skeletons have been excavated and they were sent to the anatomy department for study mm-hmm. and then nobody took them away. Mm-hmm. So we have that collection of over a thousand basically medieval scots wow what you do with all of that is so complex i mean we don't really have time to get into it Mm. in any great detail but i'll make two points one is that death you know death happens to us all it matters to us it's something that you know we find difficult if museums are about getting people to think about life and culture and so on then thinking about death is really really important at least theoretical terms to be able to encounter the remains of people who were once alive can be really powerful in a way of building that you know empathy and complexity and understanding what death is that can be really really important and i think in some ways the traditional museum you know an elaborate building often with a sort of temple architecture and mm-hmm. people behaving in that museum hush as a respectful place as a place for encountering difficult things that can be really really powerful and very valuable i think the complete other side of that is who are you presenting? Who are these dead people? What voice do they have? Do their community have? Mm-hmm. So to say on the one hand, I can see a real value for displaying the dead, it yeah. doesn't mean that it's automatically display any dead. I tend to think differently about those Scottish human remains where I feel an affinity, if not a you know genealogical descent, I may be related to some of them, but it's there's a cultural association. I feel very differently with them than I do with the ones from other parts of the world, which are collected purely to show basically racial inferiority. I think the other bit, though, is recognizing the cultural context is changing. The more that museums have focused on access, widening access and being friendlier places that are more akin to people's normal lives they feel comfortable in, the less they are an appropriate place to deal with difficult things like death. So I think we gain and we lose. The other is there have been big changes in Western attitudes to death and human remains i think from the viewpoint certainly in scotland with a sort of you know calvinist history where bodily resurrection was unimportant yeah that has faded there's a greater importance ascribed to the body and i think there's all sorts of reasons for that also that we tend to encounter death as traumatic on television and film yeah and 
we tend not to encounter death as domestic. It's not as much part of daily life. I remember when my grand died, part of the funeral, her coffin was in her bedroom and everybody, I mean, I was a tiny wee child, we all went up and had a look. And that was part of a traditional funeral practice. That is rare. And so those attitudes changing in the West and at the same time having this greater critique to do with the non-Western human remains changes the grounds of the argument and the discussion. So I think we've got to respect all of that when working out what we're doing and know that what we're doing is not forever but is trying to respond both to our own cultural environment and primarily thinking of human remains, those people. Yeah. We had an exhibition a few years ago about an ancient Egyptian woman, Takeru, and because of a partnership with the Roman and Pelotaeus Museum in Hildesheim, her coffin and her body were CT scanned, and so we were able to display the CT scan that let us talk about her life, how she probably had given birth, what age she was, that she was quite an elderly lady. We had a facial reconstruction. So the whole exhibition was about her. Mm-hmm. And we had quite a involved ethical discussion about whether it was right to display mm-hmm. her body in that exhibition, both in the CT scan and in you know physical reality. I mean, I emphasize this was, you know, as part of that discussion we concluded, it doesn't mean that we will always conclude the same thing, that it was right to do that. And one of the reasons was that our understanding of ancient Egyptian belief is that to remember her as a person, to say her name as a person, is what she would have wanted. And so by focusing the exhibition on, and we gave the the title of the exhibition was Taheru, Mm -hmm. we were in some way respecting her and what she would have wanted. We tracked down members of her family in other museums around. We were able to do our little family tree. And so we, I think we brought her individuality to play in that exhibition. We also made sure that it was staged so that people first of all came into that broader discussion about her as a person and didn't need to go beyond to see either the coffin or her wrapped mummified Mm -hmm. body, or the CT scan. But when thinking about ethical Mm decision-making, what's important is to bring a variety of people to bear who maybe have different moral codes. Mm -hmm. And so instead of it being the personal moral sense of what is right and what is wrong, it's a discussion, a consensus about what is the best thing to do in that context. So Mm -hmm. we know that it's... You know, it's never perfect. Mm-hmm. Everybody has different viewpoints, so everybody won't agree, but you come up with what is the best you can do. Now, that will depend on the context. If you have ethical discussions about the same topic with different people, you'll come to different conclusions. It does argue for having a diverse group of people in your discussion will lead to a better best. But I think that's really important is we will not get it right we've got to be trying and listening and talking. Yeah. Something that does concern me when we think about human remains, that we don't universalise it, that we don't assume that we can have a human remains policy that works for everybody. Mm. It's so varied. We lastly also wanted to turn to another topic, and that is the role of museums. Do you believe that museums are sacred places? And why? And secondly, which special educational tasks do museums have 
and what can actually looking at the past teach us? Our museum sacred spaces. It's a really good question that doesn't have a simple answer. I certainly think that there are ways in which the traditional Western museum acts certainly in an analogous way to a sacred space, that there are special buildings that are set aside from day-to-day of life, that they address issues that are quite difficult. I've talked about death, also even things like, you know, heritage, art, these are concepts that are really difficult to pin down. That's what the sacred is about. I think there is something about the items in a museum are more than just the physical things. There is, you know, that the, the word numinosity, there, there is something special in a lot of them. I go into the museum and I, I walk by things that are, you know, 4,000 years old, 15,000 years old. It's normal within that context there aren't many places in Aberdeen that you can do that it's a special place the way in which people behave when they're in them is analogous to being in a sacred space and indeed even you know the words like curators there's a wee bit you know the 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 idea of a curate and a curator you know and what way are they they're the same and different but having that special training to be able to look after these things that are special I think it's more than an, an analogy mm-hmm. but I don't think I'm, I'm going to say they are sacred. It's also quite interesting the way that society puts money into looking after these collections of hundreds of thousands of items. And you think, why? What's this about? The only explanations for that are, uh, in essence, not rational. It's ideas and meanings that really matter to people, whether it's national identity or local identity or a fascination with the past or a fascination with human creativity. It's all those things. Museum curators have long emphasized the enlightenment project of encyclopedic museums, which claim to contain, curate, and display objects from many different cultures separated in time and space, and juxtaposed in such a way as to allow an appreciation of the cultural diversity and hybridity of humankind. How do you find this idea of museums acting as encyclopedias of the world? And do you think using it as an argument against the return of colonial artifacts has weight? It's certainly been one of the more intellectually coherent reasons for hanging on to material. There are really positive aspects of it. The idea that we're connected, that collections in Aberdeen from around the world, particularly British Empire, are part of local history. And for us to not acknowledge that part of our past would be very wrong, that we have so much mobility of people as well as objects the mobility of objects came before the mobility of people often so all those things about us you know not being little separate xenophobic islands is really important that we're able to talk with other people but i think the question is really around power and who's making those decisions if the people were keen on lending things to another museum to enable that that's tremendous And actually, I think that's the route that probably will happen with these large collections of Ben and Bronze in the future. That I, I don't think that there is any real desire to have all of them in Nigeria. It's like Egypt has benefited hugely from having Egyptian material around the world in terms of its tourism industry. Not going to go further than that. And I think the right to decide what stays at home and what goes elsewhere 
that power balance has got to shift. If you've got a, you know, a self-appointed group who say, we will decide what is the best in the world, we will decide what we display next to, next to what, we'll tell the story, that claim of the International Universal Museum is rather hollow unless it's built on that genuine collaborative approach. So I think the ambassadorial function, I really get that. But I think there's a world of a difference between an ambassador and a hostage. Thanks for taking the time today and sharing your expertise and knowledge with us and our listeners, Neil. It was a pleasure to listen to your thoughts about the Benin bronzes and the sensitive topic of human remains and museums. And I'm glad that you shared your opinion about the role of museums in our time and how they can continue to serve the public in its numerous roles in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, mean, I think this is, you know, it is important. And because it is about how we relate to each other and trying to do that in a way that, you know, we respect each other, that it can be productive and, you know, lead to a better world is what we should be trying to do. We've got to think of it now and in the future. So thanks a lot for the chance to have this chat. It's been great fun. This third episode marks the end of our podcast series, Abducted Art and Cultural Theft. In our first episode, Cultural Crime and the Market for Illicit Antiquities, the archaeologist and criminal law professor Donna Yates invited us on an audio visit to Latin America, where numerous artifacts have been stolen and illicitly trafficked back and forth over national borders, from one hand into the other until their true origin was long forgotten. Donna offered a legal perspective on the looting of artifacts and its prosecution and shared some insights from my work as an art expert in front of court. For our second episode, The Hidden World of Limburg's Art Crime, we invited police expert Leonie Bauknecht. Leonie provided us insight into the massive extent of art crime here in Limburg, including looted art which is up for sale on the well-known art fair Tefov and explained to us how the police cooperates with experts from the field to fight art crime, both on a national and international level. We hope that this podcast series has provided some insight into the vast topic of art trafficking and has sharpened your eyes and mind for looted and inappropriate art the next time you visit a museum. Thanks for your time, an open ear and open mind. If you like what we do, you can give a contribution without spending a single euro. Just follow our Instagram account and feel free to send us a message via Instagram if you like or dislike what you just heard or if you want to share an idea or critique with us. We'll now be off working on other podcast projects for the next few months. Later this year, we'll be back with part two of Abducted Art and Cultural Theft and a bunch of other experts. We would love to welcome you again. You've been listening to the Maastricht Diplomat.